Hey friends, thanks for listening today. Thanks to those of you who are watching online. I hope that wherever you are in the world that uh, you are well. Maybe in listening to this or watching this today, you're feeling tired, you're feeling beaten up by life. Uh, That's that's many of us. Uh, You may come in just feeling a bit uh, exhausted, anxious, lonely. You may have questions for, you know, what is God doing in the world? Does God even notice me? And, and as we just begin a time of reflecting on Scripture, I just want to affirm for you and remind you that God loves you, that you matter, uh, and you're welcome and you're wanted in, in our local church. So uh, as we're able to continue worshiping on the lawn, I hope that you'll be able to physically gather with our church in worship or gather in an apprentice group. If we can do anything to help you get connected in the real world with real people who are following Jesus, we definitely want to do that. But I just want to start by saying God loves you, grace and peace to you, hope that you are well. So after three months of studying uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, um, we're, we're kind of wrapping things up today. And if you've been listening, I hope that one thing that you walk away with is that the church plays an integral role in what God's trying to do in the world and God's plan to renew and restore all things. And so kind of summarizing what we've read so far in Ephesians, we, we get this vision that the church is meant to be a reconciling community where previous enmity and mistrust and hatred caused by ethnic differences or socioeconomic differences are resolved with this understanding of our unity in Christ. So God's grace makes us come alive, gives us a new sense of identity and purpose and belonging. And Paul says that that ultimately what God is doing in the person of Jesus Christ is creating a new humanity. And through this new, this renewed humanity, the church, God's intention is to display His wisdom to all the world. So if we read Ephesians and take it seriously, the local church then is not something that really can be biblically viewed as an optional extra, but it's front and center to God's plan and what God is trying to do in the world. And since the church and the local church is so central to what God's doing in the world, how we engage with and as the church really matters. It matters how we use our collective gifts to serve each other and to encourage each other to grow toward maturity. It matters how we conduct ourselves in our marriages and in our singleness. It it matters how we engage in our work as part of the economy. It it matters uh, how we present ourselves publicly, the speech we use, both like verbally, like orally and in written, like how how we speak, how we use our language. Our finances matter, our sexuality matters, our parenting matters. In every aspect of our personhood and our life together as a church, we're invited to be clothed with Christ, to be the aroma of Christ. Paul's making the case that the local church matters. But for for any of us who have spent time in a local church for any length of time, we also know that while the local church matters, the local church is also difficult. Because in their local church, we encounter normal human beings who, like us, have this amazing potential, but also this this very visible brokenness. Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor for a long time, said this. He said, there's nobody who doesn't have problems with the church because there's sin in the church, but there's no other place to be a Christian. 
Peterson was also asked the question, what, do you, what, what is required to have a real church? And he had this great surprising answer. He listed two things. One, he said, was the apostles' teaching. And two, was people you normally don't hang out with. The local church matters, uh, but the local church, as some of us know all too well, is difficult. In a simple way today, as we're wrapping up Paul's letter to the Ephesians, I want to ask the question that may feel so obvious to many of you, but the simple question, what is the church? The answer may feel so basic and out in the open that you've actually never stopped to define it for yourselves. Uh, Even in asking the question, I may get a similar, like, dumbfounded kind of response when I sit down with a couple who's asked me to officiate their wedding, and I say, why do you want to get married? And the answer feels so obvious, so self-evident that they never actually put a concise answer to the question. It's obvious. Well, in the case of what is the church, is it obvious? Is it hiding in plain sight? Because actually, I think there's a lot of confusion in our world today about what is the church. So I'm going to throw out a few real-world scenarios of of, situations you might have found yourself in that, that tell a story about the church. And as I name these scenarios, in each case, I want you to ask two questions. Uh, The first question is, what story does this tell? Or what what reality, what definition of the church does this situation demonstrate? And then the second question I want you to ask as I name this scenario is, is it true? What story does it tell and is it true? So one time I was driving down the highway and I saw a billboard for a local church. And the billboard said, To have a strong America, we need a strong church. So the billboard in front of the church, to to have a strong America, we need a strong church. Let's ask the questions. What story is this telling about the identity and the nature and the purpose of the church? Uh, Well, uh, you could say that according to this billboard, the, the nature and purpose of the church is to be an organization whose purpose is to uphold the United States of America. If we were to read the Bible, if we were to take a survey of all Christians around the world, would we find that this is a true representation of the nature of the church? Well, I really like the United States. I'm grateful to be a citizen of the United States. Uh, But the goals and the callings of the church have much bigger loyalties than just to uphold one nation state. Well, how about this common scenario? You pull into a parking lot and you see somebody holding a sign that says, Welcome to church. Happens in tons of churches all over the country. Every Sunday you pull in, there's a sign, Welcome to church. What does that language, what story is it telling about the nature and the identity of the church? Well, it's telling you that church is a place that you go to. You pulled in and now you're here. Welcome to church. Well, that's the story it's telling. Church is a place. Is it true? Well, if you read the New Testament, as we're going to in our reflections today, I think we're going to find that it's not the best demonstration of what church is. We tend to reinforce this thinking about church as place uh, in, in our language that we use even with one another. You ask somebody, hey, did you go to church today? Church is a place. That's one understanding, not the best one. Here's another scenario I want to give you. You stay homesick from a worship service, but uh, you talk to a friend who attended. And so you ask the question, how was church? What story is that telling about the nature of church? 
Well, it's telling a story about church as experience or church as a worship gathering. Well, is that true? Is that all that there is to church? Here's one more scenario. You go to a local church's website or you go to their social media and all you see is pastor, pastor, pastor. Uh, You hear clips of the pastor preaching. You see pictures of the pastor. You see the biography of the pastor. Well, what story is that telling about the nature of the church? Well, in some cases, it's telling the story of church as personality cult or church as fan club. Well, is it true? Uh, Is that a true or biblical understanding of what the church is meant to be? We could go on and on with examples uh, that are telling, in my view, what are rival narratives or unhelpful narratives about the nature and the calling of the church. People promote these misconceptions of the church not because they're willfully being like wrong or, or being they're deceived. It's, it's not anything like that, but I think it's more, not, more than anything. It's they do this because of a lack of reflection. Uh, the answer to the question, what is church, feels so obvious that many people, including pastors, simply haven't thought it through. And operating unreflectively, they unintentionally build systems and use language that reinforce a misunderstanding. And this, in part, keeps the church, keeps us from living into all that we're meant to be and all that God has called us to be together. And as we wrap up Paul's letter to the Ephesians in this funny little throwaway part of the text at the end of Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to find that in an indirect way, and perhaps even more than these lavish theological arguments that, for the nature of the, per, the, of the church that Paul has made in this letter, as he's wrapping the whole thing up, he indirectly reminds us and demonstrates for us what is the true nature of the church. So you already heard verse 21, Paul said, Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord will tell you everything so you may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, you have no clue who that is. Like, apart from studying this, I wouldn't either. You think, it kind of sounds like a bible name, but I don't know anything about him. Who is Tychicus? Well, in the case of Ephesians, he's the mail carrier. Uh, this is not just a book that was printed, that, like it shows up in our Bibles. Uh, Ephesians was a letter sent to a local church, and Tychicus was the one who carried it to them from Paul. The New Testament tells us Tychicus was also the one who carried the, le- the letter to the Colossians. He makes a quick appearance in the book of Acts, and Paul references him as just a buddy who travels along the way in 2 Timothy and Titus. Uh, Paul was a companion, uh, Tychicus was a companion of Paul on his third missionary journey. And I want you to pay attention to how Paul speaks of him in verse 21. He says he's a dear brother. He's he's family. He calls him a faithful servant in the Lord. I heard somebody say that a really great thing about the local church is that it allows people to be a big fish in a small pond. People are given a place of purpose and prominence and belonging uh, in the local church. And Tychicus is just a dude in the church. He's a guy who who's a part, who's a member of, of the church, of Christ's church, and he's given a shout-out in the most read book in all of human history, the Bible, precisely because he's a part of the church. Paul drops names like this all the time in his epistles. You can go to the end of nearly any one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, and you see 
uh, names and faces. Uh, At the end of Romans, we see the name Phoebe and Priscilla and Aquila, Mary, Andronicus and Junia, Rufus, Herodion, Urbanus, Ampliatus. Again and again, Paul is just naming people. Now, like, like we read these letters in a universal kind of sense, but as Paul was writing them, we, we see that they are highly contextual and local. He's naming individuals with stories with one thing holding them together. They belong to Christ Jesus together. They're part of the church. We could skip to verse 23 in our teaching text today, and uh, I'll read this to you in the message version. It says, goodbye, friends. He speaks words of blessing. He says, love mixed with faith be yours from God the Father and from the Master Jesus Christ. Pure grace and nothing but grace be with all who love our Master Jesus Christ. What I want you to note here as we're reflecting on Scriptures is the incredibly personal nature of this letter and of many of the New Testament letters. Paul is using the language of friendship and of family in his interaction with the believers in the city of Ephesus. And he has literally personalized it by naming, by telling the name of Tychicus, uh, the letter carrier in particular. And you kind of think if, if Paul is writing these to be these universal encyclicals, these universal epistles to be, led, to be read by all believers, you know, why waste the ink and write this name? Why talk about Priscilla and Aquila and Junia and Andronicus? What's the deal with all these names? What does that tell us about the nature of the church? As we read Ephesians and we hear, you know, Paul's concluding words, and as today we're talking, we're we're trying to discern the nature of the church, we hear no trace of church as prop for the nation state. Uh, We hear nothing that underscores the thinking about church as a place, a destination that you go to. We can't find anything that sounds like church as experience or church as defined by worship service. And Paul's blessing at the end uh, end of Ephesians 6 here redirects our attention from him, Paul the Apostle, to the Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus. So it cannot be merely a fan club for the pastor or a personality cult. What we hear instead about the nature of the church from Paul's salutations is this vision of church as family. Or or one way of defining the church is the church is a network of friendships under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Church is the people. It's the people whose lives are interconnected and woven together and braided together in love by the Holy Spirit. It's the people. And getting our understanding of church as people, church as family, church as network of friendships under the Lordship of Christ matters enormously. Our building could burn down and the church would persist. The government could come in, as in other countries, and outlaw public worship services, and our network of friendships would persevere. There will come a day when the United States of America is no longer a thing, but in the age to come, there will still be the church. There will still be the people of God. Now, I'm very, very grateful for technology. Some of you are hearing my voice as you're driving down the road or you're watching this in your pajamas in your living room. I'm grateful for the technology to broadcast a sermon. It's, it's a gift. 
Technology is really great for transmitting a message, but it's not great. Nothing replaces the experience of incarnational community. Like actually being physically present to other people who love Jesus. You can read their body language and hear the breath as it goes in and out of their lungs and being known and seen and noticed and valued. Technology is really, really great, but it cannot replace incarnational friendship and community. And while COVID has caused us to be isolated, physically isolated from other people in many ways, and it appears that it's going to continue to do that, we're having this season of fasting from incarnational community. I hope that what it does more than anything is to whet our appetite, to cause us to salivate and to truly treasure the gift of being physically present uh, with other believers. And I just, I just encourage you, be patient. This season will pass and we will feast again, on the gift of community. Last week, I got to go to Nashville for a a little conference, and I was super careful and did all the things, you know. Uh, But while I was there, I I was privileged to hang out with, like, cool people whose books you've probably read, names you may know, and, like, Christian authors and speakers and that type of folk. And uh, as the conference was wrapping up, I had a very unexpected feeling of loneliness, And in my mind, I had this picture of me being like a spider that was taken away from its web. And being physically uh, absent, being geographically away, separated from my family and my friends and our church, uh, my sense of loneliness was followed by this profound sense of gratitude and knownness. And I really appreciated being in another city, how living in Tulsa all of my life and committing to a group of people, some of whom I've known for decades and decades, has just so enriched my life. In fact, I wrote in my journal that the richness of my life is directly, uh, directly related to the rootedness of my life. The richness of my life is directly proportional to the rootedness of my life. I, I belong to a wonderful, wonderful family. I have friends, I'm fortunate to have friends who know my entire life story. Friends to whom I can entrust and do entrust my secrets who have known me over many years. Um, while I'm the pastor of our church, I feel deeply known in our church. I'm grateful to feel connected, feel a sense of belonging in our church, and also a sense of belonging and connections to Christians who are not part of our local church, but but we're part of Christ's church together, friends in other countries all over the world, all over the state of Oklahoma. And I have this sense of knownness and intimacy and belonging as a part of Christ's church. I heard somebody one time define poverty as a lack of access to people who can help. And I wonder if we could say as a corollary, by correlation, that true wealth is access to many people who can help. I think in having a deeply rooted life, a life that's rooted in community, there's a sense of true wealth that comes with that, richness. Now, if if church is understood as a place or as an experience or as an obsession with a pastor, its people can suffer in isolation. It's this kind of relational poverty. But man, if church is about names and faces, it's about this network of friendships under the lordship of Christ, church is family. There's the opportunity for such wealth of knownness and interdependence. The church is meant to be family. Our first 
family. And what a gift when you have it. Now, some of you listening and watching, like you may never be a biological mother, but in God's family, you can have the gift of being a spiritual mother, a woman to whom young people look up to. You may be estranged from your biological siblings or they may have preceded you in death, but in God's family, you inherit brothers and sisters. You may have, you know, wonderful grandparents or maybe you've never known your grandparents, but in God's family, you gain these like these grandmas and these grandpas and these great uncles and great aunts and people who can know you and love you and pray for you. Now, church as family may be like encouraging or idealistic to some of you. Some of you may say, man, family can be complicated. And, you know, church can be complicated and difficult too. Conflict and misunderstandings happen. But like our family, God has given us the church to be this context in which we experience birth and we grow and we're shaped and we're challenged and we're, we love one another into maturity. A church father named Cyprian said, no one can call God father who does not have church as their mother. I've really wanted in the, in the early life of our church for us to develop this imagination of usness, of church is not just place, it's not experience, but when the, when the, the church is physically gathered, uh, I want us to really see each other. And so early on, we, we made the decision, you know, to have all of the lights up so we could see each other, to keep the music low so we could hear each other. And at, from the very beginning, I wanted lots of people who were not me to be telling their story or to be reading a scripture or to be leading a prayer or serving communion because the church is us, it's the people, it's the family, it's, it's the network of friendships. I want us in our life together to develop this imagination of usness. Churches, names, and faces, it's family. It's a network of friendships under the Lordship of Christ, which is some of what we've been getting at, the, the drum we've been banging, the bell we've been ringing these three years that we've been a church when we've said our vision is to cultivate a community. It's this network of friendships, not just to have high-attended worship services. It's to be a community that's shaped by the gospel under the Lordship of Christ to join God in the renewal of all things. Now, for those of you who are listening or watching, maybe you're a part of our church, maybe you're not, I would ask you, do these definitions, this story about church sound like your experience of the local church? Why or why not? In fairness, I'll say that not all of us are coming into the local church with this kind of expectation. And for the dreamers, for those who have this idealistic vision for the church, it can be very disheartening to just watch people come to worship services once a month or twice a month and then leave knowing no one. We don't all come with this common set of expectations. And in fact, I think there are tons of things working against our faithfulness to this vision of the local church. And you know, while worship services aren't everything, it is one time a week where we can be physically present with other believers, and it actually does matter. Uh, you can't develop a rich network of friendships by attending a worship service only one time a month or never-ending church hopping. Eugene Peterson, who I've quoted uh, earlier, uh, was asked in an interview, he was, he was 81, he was uh, nearing the end of his life, and an interviewer asked him this question, what would you say to younger Christians who are itchy for a deeper, 
and more authentic experience of discipleship. And Peterson said this. He said, I want you to go to the nearest, smallest church and commit to being there for six months. If it doesn't work out, find somewhere else, but don't look for programs. Don't look for entertainment, and don't just look for a great preacher. A Christian congregation is not a glamorous place. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes pastors are just incompetent. Some are flat out bad. He said, I don't think this is the answer to everything about having a rich experience of discipleship, but it's a better place to start than just by going to churches with the glitziest programs and all that stuff. So if you want to grow deep in your discipleship, go to the nearest, smallest church and commit. Now, we live in a hyper-individualized world, and we have a lot to do even to convince ourselves that community matters, that church as family is something that we want to sign up for. But if the richness of our life is directly proportional to the rootedness of our lives, is there a more worthy task we could give ourselves to than pouring in and committing to the local church? Now, you may attend a church for a period of days or months. Maybe it's going great. Maybe it's going poorly. But remember, we gauge progress in Christian community not in days or in weeks, but in years. And to those who hunger for such a community, I would urge you to commit to a local church for the long haul. Tons of people, I even heard it yesterday, say that millennials don't want to commit to anything and you just need to accept the fact that they won't make long-term commitments. But I am unwilling to accept that as a fact. In a flaky generation, and honestly, a generation that has seen the emptiness and the weakness and the frailty of the church, in spite of the evidence against the church, I would urge you, those of you who are listening, to be people who resolve to commit and to put down roots in a local church, who say for the long haul, counting the cost, I am in. For the sake of community, I would just say live near one another, eat together, care for one another, spend as much time together as possible, speak the difficult truth to one another, call one another to operate in your gifts, operate in your strengths as a disciple. Because remember that church is not a place Church is not an experience. Church is not a fan club or a personality cult. It's the people. It's a family. It's a network of friendships under the lordship of Christ. And wouldn't it be great if we moved the needle just a little bit that direction? Urge you not to privatize your experience of your religion, not to so personalize it and keep it to yourself that no one knows you, you're not known by anyone. We need you, the local church needs you to be part of what God is doing in the world. We're meant to be uh, part of His means of making known His manifold wisdom to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You matter. Your gifts are wanted and needed and we need one another. Let's move the needle. In a flaky generation, will you say, I'm in? Names and faces, church is family. It's a network of friendships. Let's do it together. Lord, we pray for the local church, not just for Cornerstone. Uh, we pray for uh, churches all over the city of Tulsa. Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists, non-denominational folks, 
Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Lord Jesus, we pray for the Church of Jesus Christ in the city of Tulsa and all around the world. And we ask that you would give us the awareness and the hunger to faithfully be who you've called us to be and to do together what you've called us to do. Would you forgive us, Lord Jesus, for turning church into spectacle? Would you forgive us for turning church into place or person, individual person, and so like idolizing them and platforming them? And would you just liberate us and send your spirit by giving us this fresh imagination, this fresh vision for the church's network of friendships under your lordship? I pray that you would renew those who have grown so, so weary of church, that you'd heal those who have inherited deep, deep wounds in their experience of church. And like a family, Lord Jesus, would you help us to like, forgive one another and tolerate one another and come to love one another, have a sense of loyalty to one another. And in the way that we live together, Lord Jesus, may we tell the world a better and a true story of what you're trying to do and what you will do when you come to restore and renew all things. So Lord, we love you, we honor you, we submit to your rule. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, love you. God bless you. We'll see you around.